0: Next, we have Hannah Rothschild, who is a writer, an award-winning documentary filmmaker and a businesswoman, and she returns to Five by Fifteen to discuss Her latest novel, House of Trelawney, about an eccentric, dysfunctional family of aristocrats and their crumbling stately home and about how the lives of women are still shaped by the ties of family. She um, is also the author of The Improbability of Love, which won the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for comic writing and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. We are very, very pleased to have you back with us, Hannah, and over to you. Thank you, Daisy. And it's really, really nice to be back
1: Um, particularly among such awesome uh, fellow presenters. Um, Lucy, actually, I did. It took me till I was 50 to write a book because I didn't have the confidence until then. I didn't think I had anything to say. And uh, so I didn't change my career, but I did finally get my dream together. Um, The House of Trelawney is the story of old money, new money, and no money. It's the first part of what I hope is going to be a trilogy. And it's set during the crash of 2008 And it makes fun of people and institutions which in my opinion take themselves too seriously which or whom i should say so Trelawney castle itself was built 800 years ago and it's been continuously occupied by the same family for many centuries that family did very well from agriculture from mining and mainly from switching allegiances to whichever the winning side happened to be at that moment but over the last couple of centuries they got better at spending than making money so when we meet our family, the Trelawneys, they're living off packets of frozen mints and huddling around the only two radiators that work in their vast house. Uh, one, every time somebody hears a crash of falling ceiling, they just close the door and move to another room. So in one, by one radiator, we have the elderly Earl and Countess of Trelawney, and by the other radiator, we have Kitto, his wife Jane, and their three, three completely feral children. There's also a great aunt Tuffy, who is uh, a, an expert in fleas, but she refuses to go anywhere near her family and just wears lots and lots of jumpers. So here we are in 2008, Kitto, handsome, entitled, debonair and completely financially illiterate, decides to shore up the family fortunes by taking a large bet on the London stock market. The crash happens, he loses everything. This cataclysm brings his long-lost sister Blaise, who happens to be rather good at finance, back into the fold, an unwanted illegitimate child, and the family's nemesis, an American hedge funder called Sir Tomlinson Sleet. There are three main female protagonists. One will find love, one will die, and the other one will lose everything. Dot, dot, dot. So I'm often asked where stories come from. For me, a novel is a collision of different ideas and themes. And some of these have been swilling around in my mind for a very long time, decades very often. And The House of Trelawney, the first part, came while I was clearing out an old trunk. And I found a letter from a friend of mine called Millie, who's still my, probably my closest friend for 40 years. And I sat there thinking, what on earth would have happened if I hadn't had this friendship? And I rely, as many people do, on, on my girlfriends as much as on my family. And actually that became the first theme of the book was female friendship and its absence as well as its presence. The second part, I love a saga. Who doesn't love a saga? And in fact, if I look at the uh, history of books that I've loved, they're very often families over time. I think about the Caslick Chronicles. I think about Buddenbrooks. I think about Nancy Mitford. I think about Elena Ferranti's Neapolitan Quartet. The joy of seeing the same people evolve and age over time. And I wondered if I could do the same thing. And then of course I had to find a family. That was my theme too. Then on the morning of September the 15th, 2008, this is my past career, the one before I did now, I was making a documentary feature about an interior designer called Nikki Haslam for the BBC. And we went to Moscow. And between the time that we took off in London and the time we landed in Moscow, the world changed in my opinion. I turned on the television in my hotel room and I saw the employees of Lehman Brothers carrying all their files out in cardboard boxes. And then I watched the stock market and the ticker tape turn from green to red. And I saw the value of shares half quarter and in some cases literally disappear like sand falling out of a bottle. And that very night I watched uh, the designer and his friends uh, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars buying work by Damien Hurst that was at auction in London. And it was such a strange disconnect, kind of Nero was playing the fiddle while Rome burned, I think the expression is. I believe then as I believe now that what happened in 2008 was that all those structures we had implicitly trusted, those national institutions, those central banks, those governments let us down profoundly. And we realized that they never actually had our best interests at heart. And I felt that we were and we are living in a global society which was morally and figuratively bankrupt. And that's what I wanted to write about. And that's the that was what I put my my people through, my family through. But actually, underneath all that, I wanted to write about love, different kinds of love, familial love, paternal love, maternal love, uxorial, sisterly, romantic And I should say a little kind of moment of personal revelation is that at the time and perhaps for quite a long time at that time, I'd been on my own. I was in a bit of an emotional desert. Uh, Lots of things were going well. My work was going well, my friends, most importantly, my children were well. But my romantic life had been on an extended holiday, let's put it that way. So I decided to make my central character, Blaze, rather like me, someone, you know, who who hadn't had that uh, nice experience for a long time, and to play Eros. And I shot the arrow of love at her, and I thought, if I can't have it, then she can. And I created a very, very romantic, glorious suitor for her. Now, the next thing people sometimes ask is, OK, so you've got your ideas, and you've got your characters, and then what do you do? Well, dreaming up a book is fun. That's the good bit. And, of course, the not-so-much-fun bit is actually sitting down and writing it. I think in words, in pictures rather than words. And what I tend to do is I get a big sheet of paper and I start scribbling all over it, you know, and I put lines here and lines there and bubbles, etc, etc. And then I have a shoebox and in the shoebox I put all sorts of other stuff, photographs, old banknotes, postcards, ideas, train tickets, etc, etc. It's not... It's not the way I would recommend writing, it's extremely inefficient. Um, As we know, you know, proper writers, and I don't still consider myself a proper writer, but someone like Jane Austen actually maps out every single conversation, every single walk, every single meal that any of her characters have. um, So that when she starts, she knows what's going to happen, quite unlike me. Um, Many writers treat their vocation like a job. You know, Martin Amis famously has a boiled egg and then sits at his desk for 10 hours. Uh, Murakami gets up at four, he works for five to six hours, then he runs 10 kilometers, can you imagine? Swims for 1500 meters, sometimes both, mind boggles. Not my life. I actually have a day job, another completely different nine-to-five existence. Part of that is finance, and part of it is helping to look after Wadston Manor, a beautiful stately home which used to belong to our family, but now belongs to the National Trust. And as you can imagine, Huge old houses and finance was pretty helpful with the plot of this book. Sometimes I think if I didn't have a job, I'd I'd be a better writer because I'd have more time, but then I wonder what the hell I'd write about. Anyway, so having amassed all this information, my shoebox, my coloured pencils, my big pieces of paper, I then have to start writing and I treat my books like a secret lover. I take the manuscript, I go to coffee shops, I go to hotels, I go to the park, and I start hammering away on my on my computer. As I said, I had this idea that it was going to be three, the first is 2008, the second will be set in kind of Brexit, 1516, and the last one I suspect, if we haven't had enough by then, is will be pandemic related. It's quite fun having the same characters and following them, but they are also rather stubborn and inculcitrant. Let's take Clarissa, the Countess of Trelawney, she's wonderfully grand and self-important, she feels sick if she wakes up and doesn't look out of the window at her own land. The thing is, if I want to make her do something different, it's very, very difficult. Then of course, the other big decision you have to make as a writer is what's the tone? What kind of voice are you going to use? I've always loved satire, whether it's Shakespeare's Twelfth Night or Nancy Mitford or Catch-22, you know, Even War. Maybe because I don't like taking life too seriously, but maybe also I think that humour is a very good way of exploring big themes and who frankly can take our terribly seriously. They're big people sitting in the House of Lords, flashing their titles. They often have more windows than than brain cells. Anyway, in the end, spoiler alert, uh, my lot have moved out of the big house and into a small cottage. As for Blaze, well, I had a lot of fun writing about her ideal man. I made him middle-aged and very handsome. He'd been quite successful, but he'd come to the conclusion, perhaps rather like one of Lucy's friends, that there were better things in life, like the environment, and then he bought a small farm and he started to work that land. He was single, of course, when they met. Lucky old Blaze. If only I had a novelist masterminding my own love life. Anyway, after two years of writing and rewriting this book, I sent it off to my agent. I pressed the send button and they went out to lunch. As it happened, it was quite a big lunch. There, and this is a true story, I sat next to a man. I'd never met him before. The first thing I noticed is he was terribly handsome. He told me he was a widower. And what do you do? I asked him. He explained that he'd spent most of his life in business, but had given all of that up, to concentrate on a small farm where he grew vines and olives, enough to support him and his family. I looked at him. I couldn't believe it. Dear reader, could I possibly have written him? I pinched myself. But what can I tell you? These days I spend my holidays up an olive tree, often with a glass of rather rough wine. And I can tell you something else, that if I do write Volumes 2 and 3, the harvests are going to be unbelievable each year, and I will make sure that Blaze's love life is really, really fantastic. So if you want to write a book, do it for that reason alone, It can make your dreams possibly come kind of true. Anyway, thank you very much.
0: Anna, thank you so much. That was so delightful and beautiful and so lovely to think about female friendship and also about falling in love and some insight into the creation of your brilliant, brilliant characters. Thank you so, so much. The House of Trelorny is out now and I hope that everyone will get a copy.